0: Hi, welcome to Episode 7 of the Life in Bomb City podcast, brought to you by the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department at Amarillo College. I'm Aaron Favor.
1: And I'm Dr. Beth Rodriguez.
0: This podcast is produced in the Panhandle PBS and FM90 studios on the Washington Street campus. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, podcast apps, and podcatchers. Today, we're presenting Part 2 of our Trilogy on the Opioid Crisis, during Part 1, we visited with Representative Ford Price, who discussed the findings of the Select Committee on Opioids and Substance Abuse in the Texas House of Representatives, as well as what has been done in terms of policymaking in the 2019 legislative session. So now we want to take our listeners from the policymaking dimension in this episode to what the opioid crisis looks like on the front lines. Uh, to give a little bit of history about our guests before we begin our conversation, Deputy Nell was has worked for the Sheriff's Office since 2008. He's handled a narcotic detection uh, canine since 2012, which uh, we should add are amazing dogs. And he has worked criminal interdiction on the highway. His uh, current assignment is to criminal interdiction. Deputy Simpson has worked the sheriff's uh, for the Sheriff's Office since 2006. He began his work with criminal interdiction in 2013. He's been assigned as a task force officer with the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, we'll call it DEA from now on. And he's currently assigned to investigate narcotics. So very grateful to have both of you men with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Deputy Depute Nolan, uh, we want to congratulate you regarding the last constitutional amendment election here in Texas. Texas voters overwhelmingly supported proposition ten. ninety six percent. I want to talk to the four percent that didn't vote for it, but uh, which uh, that allows uh, former handlers and qualified caretakers to adopt retired law enforcement animals without a fee. Uh, that will now be part of our state constitution. So uh, congratulations to you and all other handlers of law enforcement animals. They develop these deep bonds with their animals that you work side by side with.
1: Okay, so um, we brought you guys here, today because first we just want to know, what do you really do? Like, what is your job?
2: All right, and I'll go sure. first. Um, so my assignment had, it can kind of change from day to day um, depending on what we need to get done. But uh, we're assigned to a unit that um, more or less investigates narcotics, explains it in a broad uh, perspective. Um, but in the end I'll assist them on the highway if they need it. Um, they'll give me a call and need help and I'm coming. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I'll, I'll utilize, uh, tips and work on tips that we've received and go out and do surveillance and, uh, things of that nature. Um, so, th- and then we'll investigate any narcotic violation or if the sheriff sends us somewhere
3: else to investigate some kind of criminal organization stuff, uh, we'll go that way.
2: Uh, but that, that's what I do. And
3: uh, you know, like, uh, Deputy Simpson said our jobs kind of change. It's pretty fluid uh, depending on what case or assignment we're had. And we all also want to make sure we, we kind of reiterate the fact that it's criminal interdiction. Uh, drugs tend to be the primary thing that we end up working, but um, it's anything from human trafficking, um, maybe serious crime elements that are in Amarillo, um, that maybe enforcement doesn't patrol doesn't have time to work. Um, but a lot of that stuff ends up primarily leading back to narcotics. So that kind of gets mistaken as just narcotics uh, because that's primarily what we end up doing. Uh, I primarily work in a uniform capacity in a marked patrol unit um, with the canine um, and work on the highway, um, working criminal interdiction on the highway. So uh, my job is to uh, try to intercept uh, contraband or criminal activity, uh, criminals or any criminal element that's passing through or destined to come into the community here in Amarillo.
1: Okay. So when, um, although we know these national statistics that everybody's saying all these things about opioids and drugs, and it's coming through Amarillo because of I-40 are these national statistics, these statewide statistics, are they real?
2: Yes. Uh, So the national statistics, we see it more like in the opioids on the East coast and up north and Amarillo We've had the problem, but we've had more of a meth problem here. And meth has been so prevalent that it's kind of kept us from seeing heroin as much. And um, more recently, in the last couple of years, we have started seeing more heroin, though. And uh, so I, I, we see it growing here, but I don't think it's, it's as bad as other areas of the country.
0: Okay, yeah. so uh, the data from DEA's 2018 National Drug Threat, Uh, shows the threat of heroin is on the rise over a period of time. I believe the last seven or eight years is what that covered in that report. And uh, that all the DEA's field divisions report that heroin continues to be a threat to communities. In our first episode of the trilogy, we heard Representative Price indicate that some individuals self-medicate with heroin or other illegal drugs after they lose access to their prescribed opioid. The report is pretty clear that prescription drug monitoring programs continue to be among the most promising state-level intervention mechanisms. To improve opioid prescribing and dispensing, inform clinical practice, and protect patients at risk. Um, also, pre- prescription drug take back days seem to be incredibly helpful. However, despite these successes, the drug threat report indicates that abuse levels of these prescription drugs remain high. Um, notable statistics include that 18.6 million people age 12 or older misused prescription psychotherapeutic drugs in 2016 alone. Uh, This number also includes 11.5 million who misused pain relievers in the previous year and 6.2 million past month users. The report goes on to say that because of the popularity of the abuse of these specific drugs, other opioids are now being disguised and sold as CPDs or controlled prescription drugs as traffickers look to gain access to new users. Like fentanyl and heroin are described here. How often uh, do you guys see these CPDs find their way out of the hands of prescribers and patients and onto the streets for sale on the black market? And how significant of a problem is that in your own experience? Uh, We've discussed this
3: uh, recently because we've had uh, numerous encounters with exactly what you're talking about. Um, I actually just had uh, an encounter on a traffic stop just yesterday uh, working um, where a subject uh, kind of discussed. uh, I like to get information how people get where they're at. Uh, This person, uh, didn't get caught anything, didn't end up going to jail, but he was willing to share with me the history of the addiction that he had. And it started with an injury, um, being introduced to a painkiller, and then now he's uh, permanently on a medication to help him deal with the addiction that he dealt with. Uh, so it's been, I want to say he had, 12, for 12 years, he's had to get clinical help to recover from the medication that, the addiction that he developed to opioids through that. Um, and then just last night I was reading, um, somebody closely related to our family had some huge family problems um, that were just, uh, just a sad, horrible downslide of events. Um, and she revealed that that was a basis of an injury um, that had led to her husband becoming addicted to opioids. Um, and then I think you had so- something recently yeah. too that...
2: And we talk to different people. You know, some people give us information. Some people, it's just our patrol has come across them and we go out and we talk to them. And we've heard exactly that most of them and it always starts out as some kind of injury or surgery and so they've had a painkiller uh prescribed to them and they start to abuse that painkiller and then it moves into heavier drugs or um or you know to heroin eventually
0: because they can't get hold of more pills pills are harder to come by than heroin is so um and speaking to this uh this problem that seems to be with traffickers looking to gain access to new users um how often do you see these uh These disguised uh, pills that are actually quite more potent, more potent, more dangerous, deadly uh, than your typical opioid.
2: I've seen it a couple different times of you know kind of manufactured pills. Um, There is this you know you just uh, mentioned fentanyl in the what you're reading there, and uh, we haven't really seen fentanyl. We've we've I've seen it a couple years ago here on a local level, but it's a little further between. We don't see it every day. Um, we actually did come across a, a lab probably three years ago that was in Lubbock and they were printing uh, pills to make them look like other things. And it was fentanyl and it was just on the college campus down there of college kids. And so we've seen that, you know, a couple of times here and there, but it's not necessarily a daily thing that we see that, you know, we, we see more, um, you know, illicit drugs, yeah. you know, not yeah. really just things disguised as other things.
3: Typical, uh, you know, kilo packaging like you'd see on the movies. Um, we had fentanyl uh, this year trafficking through. Uh, was not destined for Amarillo, but it does highlight the fact that um, it's something that we had never never seen in years past. Uh, but now we are seeing definitely the fentanyl and the heroin as, as you know, a, a more common drug that we're seeing. And
1: for people who don't know, um, fentanyl is about, what, five times... As strong, I mean, it's like the effect on is like five times stronger than just the, what we would see in a normal opioid.
2: It's kind of hard to gauge it because you know there is different versions of fentanyl. Uh, you have car fentanyl, which is very powerful, and you know it's like an elephant tranquilizer, so it's, it's you know really powerful. But it's also these are made illegally; they're not really made by a company to where we can say this is how potent it is. Um, and you know this, it's most most of it's come from China right now. And it's it's made as as a fentanyl as a, as a drug there, and then they're shipping it over here in different types and forms. You know, I've even seen it uh, bagged in a creatine powder. They disguise it as that to get it over here. Um, but it's hard to gauge the potency of it. But but we do know it's it, it's very dangerous because it can absorb through the skin, and and micrograms can can harm you. And and so, like I said, it it is powerful. But it's just hard to gauge how powerful it is.
3: And based off of that, uh, recognizing the seriousness of the hazard that presents, and of not knowing what these substances are and the potencies, um, most law enforcement agencies and ours uh, specifically has issued all of our officers Narcan um, to wear on their person. As this has progressed, it does highlight the fact that um, we're not ignorant to the fact that it is becoming more more prevalent. Um, so all all the officers, even my dog, actually has a Narcan for him also. So oh, that's wow. so neat. Dog Narcan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: amazing. Uh, so in a former episode of our show, former uh, former Mayor Harpole was talking about the highways. And we were talking about uh, the different uh, road construction that was going on on I-40 and, and around the city and things of that nature. But he highlighted the, an, an, an estimate of around 50,000-plus trucks that are traveling down I-40 each day. That does not include pedestrian traffic. Um, how do you guys begin the process of an investigation that ends in the hoped-for conclusion of a successful interdiction effort? Can you break that down for us?
3: Okay, you know, so it sounds complicated, and uh, when you're looking at hundreds of cars pass you every day at 75 miles an hour, um, you know, I'm not going to lie, when we first got into it, it's certainly a learning curve to figuring out how to, to isolate criminal activity on a highway and somebody that's driving a motor vehicle or a commercial motor vehicle. Um, we are uh, obviously privy to law enforcement databases and investigations that include uh, Homeland Security, uh, DEA, uh, other federal agencies, local agencies that all have BOLOs and alerts that tie together with cases that are involved. Um, so we do get uh, information uh, sometimes. I wish it was all the time that we had this, this steady flow of telling us which vehicle um, actually had a already pre uh, you know, probable cause for that individual subject involved in criminal activity, uh, but that's not the case. We we do have to uh, use our training and experience over you know numerous years, uh, and, and it takes a little while to kind of get used to the flow of what you're looking at. Uh, but uh, primarily, we work high volume traffic stops uh, on the highway, so we make more stops uh, maybe than. Uh, than other people. People would think, oh man, you're harassing the motoring public. We're not, we're not (laughs) trying to. My, our goal is to have it be the friendliest uh, encounter that you would have with any officer. So that's kind of my goal. Uh, When somebody leaves that they, you know, shake my hand and, uh, and, uh, and have a good day. Uh, But during that encounter, um, like any profession uh, in law enforcement, particularly, we learn to put together um, evidence of uh, criminal activity taking place. Um, So It doesn't take too long into the conversation when we've dealt with hundreds of stops of the innocent motoring public and the regular joe that we encounter and the moms and dads and grandpas and kids involved in regular um, lawful business of their day and regular travel Um, and we've learned to decipher um, that behavior from the behavior of of somebody involved in criminal activity. And just like any officer being involved, being called to a call to a bar fight and being able to distinguish the aggressor in that crowd, you can pick up the lots of different things from sympathetic responses to stress and body behavior, um, you know, vehicles, registrations. um, And there's lots of little pieces that put without going into uh, a whole, uh, you know, 40 hour class on the deal we are able to put those things together and, uh, and work it um, from that point. Um, once we get to that point of, of establishing that we've got something that's out of place or not normal from, from a normal traffic stop, then we can kind of dig in a little deeper and, and work with them to figure out what we're, uh, what we're dealing with and establish reasonable suspicion that a reasonable prudent person would believe that a crime has or is taking place. Once we've established that reasonable suspicion, Without, uh, you know, extending the traffic stop without lawful means, that reasonable suspicion of criminal activity gives us the opportunity to move forward into a criminal investigation and say, hey, can we confirm or deny that something's here? Just because we have a few things doesn't mean that they're involved in criminal activity, but it gives us uh, the space to ask a few more questions and get a little deeper into it and kind of confirm or deny that. And that ends up leading us to the seizure of narcotics um, and other crimes, uh, you know, we've had uh, bank robbers, uh, any any crime you can imagine. You got to drive somewhere to commit a crime.
0: So when you're on I-40, that's kind of where we yeah. major artery of the United States uh, yeah. transportation system. And it, it, from what you've indicated, it sounds like you'll have uh, you have access to this uh, database, but supplied by uh, national organizations or agencies uh, run by the underneath the executive branch that are uh, on a on a mission to uh, to stop the flow of these drugs into all these different pockets of American society and preventing them from getting there. Uh, that sounds like that. Is that how often is that the starting point uh, for this, for one of your criminal investigations? Or is it like you you stop something based on off of a what you what you called a probable cause? Sure. How many of them
3: are cold stops just right. initiated there? Yes, I, I would say primarily in my job, that's that's most probably the majority of what I do is a cold stop without any intel just working what's in front of me. Um, on Deputy Simpson's side, he may be able to a little a little different on the local level of how some of his cases start that are a little different than just a cold stop. But. And,
2: and I would agree, out on the highway, um, you know, it is more of a, a cold nature. We don't have any previous information. We're just high volume traffic stops, uh, you know, and then working what's in front of us. Um, more on the, the local level, we do work more with not necessarily databases and everything, but just information received from the community. And, you know, we just work on that, and we, we start cooperating. And, you know, sometimes we get tips from someone that's upset about their neighbor that they see a lot of traffic coming from, uh, but it's not necessarily criminal-related. It's just they have an annoying neighbor. <laughs> um, and so we have to go out, we have to do surveillance, and we have to kind of distinguish what, you know, what's what. Is this criminal in nature or is this not? And, and that, that works more for information from the public.
1: Sounds like y'all do a lot of psychology profiling. <laughs> well, you <yeah, yeah. laughs>
3: know.
1: Yeah, like everybody right. wants to be a profiler. Everybody in my classes, they all are like, yes, I want to be a profiler. <laughs> right. Like then you need to start working for the government. Oh, there you go. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so I have a question. So because um, all the legalization of marijuana that's been going on, um, do you guys, like if you do get a stop for marijuana, is it seen as different than other drugs?
3: Yeah. You know, so the marijuana deal, yeah, it's a, it's the hot topic, right? I mean, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's smelling it. You know, it's everywhere now, you know, Uh, I actually talked to, uh, have talked to several people recently. They go, oh, it's decriminalized Amarillo now. It's not Uh, just for the record. It's still illegal uh, smoking marijuana, uh, the use of, of marijuana. It's not hemp. It's a, it's a different category there. Uh, But, you know, as we've dealt with that, um, you know, to say, hey, people are going to always want to ask the question, well, do you think we should legalize it? Should we not legalize it? This whole political push for us, um, you know, we work on the law side of it. So, you know, our, our spectrum is a little smaller than what we would, you know, maybe even like it to be on. And what our opinions are and our, our ideas are, we don't have a lot of say in how that works. Uh, is marijuana like heroin? Absolutely not. Um, is marijuana compared to meth or coke? It, it's not. Um, what we can say is, um, in, the, in the world that we work in, um, coming at it maybe from a, of a backwards angle is that the criminal element that we deal with on, on a local level, that even our patrol officers deal with, um, when we're answering calls for crimes, uh, marijuana is very, very, very often present in that. Does that mean marijuana causes somebody to become a criminal or crosses that line? Uh, no, but from a law enforcement perspective, we see it in conjunction. Uh, we probably see marijuana involved in these, uh, in these crimes taking place more than even alcohol or would be involved. It's so pre- prevalent right now. Um, as far as somebody saying, well, marijuana is a gateway drug to harder drugs, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think we, we've kind of talked about this and come to the agreement that I think more of it's a shift in, in your moral compass and right now it is illegal and it's been illegal and that's the law. We don't make the laws and nobody in this room gets to make those laws. We're all voting citizens and we let the process go through what it has to um, to get, you know, where the people decide it needs to be. Uh, But what we do see is at the point where somebody decides to engage in criminal activity because they believe it's harmless and that they have a right to do it, they've crossed over that moral line of saying it's okay to break the law because it's okay, because the culture says it's okay, because my music video says it's okay, because all the actors on Hollywood say it's okay, then we're going to cross that line. And what we found from that is, um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty logical to, to kind of connect the pieces after that, um, that for kids or adults that, that push that envelope, well, then they're already involved in the behavior and the psychology of criminal activity. So they have to hide what they're doing. They have to be secret about it. Um, it just makes it easier once you've crossed that line when somebody says, well, hey, I have a pill or, hey, I'm at the bar having a drink. Well, here, just, you know, take this. And it's just a small step. It's an action that is uh, moment. It just happens in a moment and you've already crossed that moral gap. So to say that marijuana is a gateway drug, personally, I wouldn't agree with that. I'm not a doctor or um, expert in psychology, but from my experience, I would say that once you cross that moral line, the rest of the drug behaviors in criminal element just happens a lot easier after you've made that
0: decision. I would agree with you. (laughs) That that series of incremental steps uh, sounds exactly like what some of the conversations that Beth and I've had uh, regarding all kinds of deviant behavior.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay. I do have one question for you too. Um, What areas in Amarillo are you like, are the ones that we're most worried about?
2: Uh, actually, all of them. Um, you know, we see it everywhere. We we see on the north side, the south side, west side, east side. Um, we we've been in all parts of town. Um, we don't really see it worse in one area. I mean, there there are areas that there might be stash houses because uh, they can pay rent over there cheaper for their little stash house. You know, so we might see those more in one area. You know, in the lower income. Um, but really, it's all over town. Uh, I I can't say that I've worked more in one area of town than the other. Uh, We've been all over town. Even, you know, we work for the Potter County Sheriff's Office, but we work on the south side in Randall County just as much because we help each other, you know, through the Sheriff's Office. But, yeah, I I haven't seen it more prevalent in one more than the other.
1: Is there a group, though, that is most alarming to either one of you that has to do with drugs and this epidemic we're seeing?
2: As far as a group, I don't know that I would call it a group, but probably an age. It it definitely does disturb us more when we see younger uh, age people involved in stuff. Um, But as far as like a different group of people, we deal with all walks of life and groups in, in our area. and. Like I said, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a group that's alarming, but more of an age that becomes
3: more alarming to us.
1: What age is? I mean, how young so are we seeing here?
3: Oh, you know, we're talking. You know, even uh, even middle school kids are are succumbing to this, and it's in the pill form in that in that sense. And while uh, Xanax, I don't know if it categorizes exactly as an opioid. I'm not a pharmacist. Um, it's a benzo. But it um, that that is kind of a start for people that get into opioids. There's definitely a clear connection between that. And we have dealt with school-age kids um, with bars, they call them, or handlebars um, um, that ends up being a problem. So the younger people are harder to notice. I mean, you don't look at these people or business people or people involved in the community they are successful. You don't see them as being uh, – they're harder to pick out because they haven't been in the system. So younger people, you're like, is there a problem there? There is, but it's not it's not as easy to find. Of course, when you've gone through the addiction phase for years and years and years of your life, um, the other, the, you know, the older age is more obvious. Um, ha- you can definitely see the the debilitating effects more obvious. You can look at them and go, oh, that person's, you know, had a rough life. You know what I'm saying? And, and so it makes it a little easier. But age wise, now In 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 group or social groups. You know, we've had uh, PTA soccer moms uh, addicted to opiates. Um, you know, I've I've known people out of out of our state that were you know youth pastors. That it's a it's a it's a, a chemical. I think we talked about this earlier between an addiction and a dependency. Um, and heroin, I think, crosses that line and touches more people because of the fact um, that it's not you're not seeking a high. Um, you at a certain point, you're dependent on it, and and the withdrawals are so egregious that it's just horrible. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a dependency that covers a larger group of people.
1: It just really makes me nervous because I have a 13 year old mm-hmm. <laughs> and an 11 year old, and they're yes. And so, so
3: do they do they talk about it? Have you talked to them about it? Or are they familiar with some of the the terms? Because
1: no, but we, I do talk to them about it. Okay. Like okay. I ask them questions, and they're like, "What?" And I'm like, Oh good! Right. I'm so glad that you're."
3: So, so I was interesting. Cause I that. talked to a group of eleven-year-olds at uh, up at the mall the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, they had all had some some juvenile malfunctions in life. Um, but the knowledge of what these kids had just blew my mind. I'm like, these these kids know all about it. They know the street names. Um, you know, some of them brag about uh, all the drugs that they've used. And I'm like, well, you're 11 years old, you know. So it's a it's a tragic.
1: I'm I'm hoping my kids are really that innocent. I should I know <laughs> that they're not, <laughs> right. but yeah. Yes, I do talk to him about it. Yeah.
0: Speaking, <laughs> speaking of, you know, slang and code words, things that uh, I did pull the, uh, the DEA's intelligence report on. Uh, it's unclassified of the drug slang code words uh, for things of the thing, things that we're talking about, like fentanyls, like Apache, and butter, China girl, Chinatown, <laughs> China white, good fella, great bear. Um, we were, Beth and I were, were visiting about this a couple of days ago. Like there's Top Gun uh, uh, it kind of, there's, how do you guys know what, you, you know what you're dealing with? The words,
2: it, it basically if someone uses a word that seems out of place, we can figure it's a slang for something. And so, and it depends on the person and the group you're talking to. You know, we, we've heard um, construction terms used uh, in place of drugs in one group, where the other one may be appliances, you know, like refrigerators and, you know, it's all kinds of different words they use. And they just come up with that as code just so, you know, they can try to avoid us or avoid anybody else being suspicious of them. And, and a lot of times we just have to clarify what the people are talking to, what they mean by that word. Um, you know, but there are the general terms. that are kind of na- nationwide that we know, you know, um,
0: but. The devil's lettuce. There you go, That'd the devil's one lettuce. We know that one. We know that one. <laughs> know
3: that one. <laughs> yeah, I like he's, so, you know, there are some basic terms, I guess, that we refer to. When we we see a substance, you know, we're not we haven't taken it to the lab, you know, we're we haven't analyzed this yet, but uh, you know we've got uh, Mexican brown heroin, which just by the color and what you're looking at, kind of I'm I'm sure based off of the association of where it originated, developed that that term, and then we have China white, which is a white heroin um, that in color is similar to cocaine. It's white, so it you know I'm sure its place of origin. Played into giving it that name, and then we have black tar heroin, which in of itself is is a different texture and consistency, and is like the name says, it's a black tarry substance. So those are basic, you know, kind of universal law enforcement recognitions for specific ones, like hey, I found, I've got you know some black tar heroin versus I've got a white heroin. Uh, then the slang names, like he said. Um, I think he's, he's constantly having to, to get with these people and keep up with where they're at with their crazy names, you know.
2: And like and like I said, you know, a lot of, like we'll refer to it as black tar heroin, but someone off the street may just say black or they'll say H or, you know, white or, you know. And if they're saying white, we have to usually clarify because some, some groups may call, uh, like, white heroin white, but then other may call meth white. So, you, you know, sometimes we have to get clarification, but they're, You name it, and it's probably been slain
0: somewhere, you know. Uh, It gets into another question. Um, In the media and in the political sphere, uh, we hear a lot about the threat of Mexican transnational uh, criminal organizations. For example, the Sinaloan cartel uh, seems to have dramatic reach within the U.S. Um, I would like to read a small segment of the report to our listeners and ask you guys to uh, comment on it. Um, It says uh, U.S.-based Mexican TCOs are composed of various compartmentalized cells assigned with specific functions such as drug distribution or transportation, consolidation of drug proceeds, or money laundering. Mexican TCO operations in the United States typically function as a supply chain. Operators in the chain are aware of the specific function, but are unaware of other aspects of an operation. In most cases, individuals hired to transport drug shipments within the United States are independent third-party contractors who may be working for multiple Mexican TCOs. There are increasing numbers of these transportation groups in some areas, and in many cases, they transport smaller shipments. First of all, it sounds like uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, The Mule. Which is a um, great
1: movie, by the way. It's yeah. an interesting movie. It's, good, yeah.
0: it's, good. Uh, but it's a very real and complex issue of our time. So can you please visit with us about how you think about this as a problem or maybe, better worded, a large set of problems? How do you break the complexity down so that you can begin to deal with it? Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, so I guess any, any narc, it would be fair to say um, – and speaking with the with the DEA agents locally, it's fair to say that any of the of the narcotics coming into Amarillo in our community are coming across the southern border and are tied to the cartel. Um, so if you're going to say that, uh, you know, the cartel's not here, you know, that would be uh, naive and it would sound nice to, to try to say that it's not. But it is. Um, in order to have that communication from point A to point B, um, we definitely have an infrastructure here that is related to um, cartels. Which cartels are they? Um, there's probably numerous different ones involved, uh, without naming them. Uh, when you mentioned the the trafficking um, schemes and and in people involved in the in the segments and how kind of how they're dividing their business structure up, um, yeah, I'd say primarily from our experience, uh, you have a, the mule um, that is typically, uh, you know, a person that's hired just uh, to transport uh, the narcotics from point A or the contraband, whatever it may be, from point A to point B. Uh, But we have, in our experience, actually had people that were um, tight uh, cartel members that were directly associated that, for whatever reason, ended up being the person uh, transporting it. So, um, well, yes, the norm is definitely, like you stated, had had read there, it's, uh, you know, you've got um, isolated groups with individual jobs. You know, they have a pretty good business structure, uh, but we've seen it both ways on that.
2: Yeah, and I think to add to that a little bit, it's not always going to be like the cartel themselves or where they have this group. They hire out smaller gangs from our area. You know, like they may hire out the banditos to go do something for them or the Aryan Brotherhood to go do this for them. And it's all about making money in the end. And so if that group sees a way that they can make money working for them, then then they'll go make money that way. And the same for the cartels. We can keep our hands clean of this if we hire them to do that then they'll they'll
0: hire them to do that the cooperation and collaborative investigations that take place at the federal state and local level uh, the report highlights one specific to texas um, collaborative investigation that took place in april of 2018 where the texas dps criminal investigations division led an operation coordinated by the texas anti-gang center uh, with assistance by the dallas police department criminal intelligence unit the dea the u.s marshal service and the bureau of alcohol tobacco firearms and explosives um, they were able to arrest 57 members of business associates, uh, various white supremacist gangs, uh, as you were uh, mentioning, including Aryan Circle, Aryan Brotherhood of Texas, the Pecker Woods, uh, sold Soldiers of Aryan Culture, Dirty White Boys, and Tango Blast. It says the defendants conspired together to commit kidnapping and traffic methamphetamine and other illegal narcotics throughout North Texas. And elsewhere, law enforcement authorities were able to seize over 190 kilograms of meth, 31 firearms, and over $376,000. As you both uh, work to interdict the trafficking of the supply chain, how often do you interact or receive information from your colleagues in working with other agencies, counties, local PDs? Is that constant?
2: Yeah, uh, we, we work with basically every agency in the panhandle. Uh, We work with all the federal agencies. Um, We'll also, like I said earlier, we stay in close contact with, like, our Randall County uh, counterparts on the the south side of town. Um, And it it really does help us to figure these out because, you know, especially we work for Potter County. You know, we want to stay in Potter County as much as we can, but we also know that these uh, gangs and everything, they affect Potter County, even though they're not in Potter County. Um, so we do try to stay in close contact with, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch with people from Lubbock, um, you know, all the small towns, Pampa, Hereford. Uh, we work with all those
3: other agencies as well as all the federals. Uh, you know, I think kind of the progression of most of these, uh, you know, starts on a small level. Like I said, it may be surveillance to, uh, you know, resolve an issue in a neighborhood or something like that or a tip. Um, and as it builds and there's more people involved, uh, the spreadsheet gets cr- pretty large very, you know, very quickly. Um, so we do definitely utilize on a, on a constant basis um, the federal assets that we have, everybody working together to get those. And we may have uh, agents working in Florida with somebody in California that's connecting to here and then federal agents in, in you know, other states or even across the border. And that intel is just constantly you know, turned over in the washing machine and all the little pins put in place until we can get the biggest effect. Um, if we just work by ourselves, we would be very limited in being able to to do anything with the problem we have locally. So it definitely takes everybody coming together to get it done, you know. Right.
1: So the gangs that are here, which a lot of people, because we're unaware, we don't realize that there are gangs like multiple gangs in Amarillo and um, just to keep their gang afloat and making money, they do often get in drugs. Yes. Okay. And so because of that, like what are, I mean, can you kind of expand on the idea so we can everybody will be aware? Cause I think when people think of Amarillo, cause we have people who are listening in other countries and, you know, outside of Amarillo, they think of this small place and that we didn't, de- we can't be dealing with drugs on this level. We can't be dealing with gangs at this level. We can't be dealing with the cartel at this level, but we are. And can you kind of expand on that so people can understand?
2: Yeah. And some of that has to do with just not necessarily how big our town is, but just the geographical location within the nation that we are. Uh, and then we'll also, uh, I-40 runs through here. So it's convenient, you know, stopping place. Um, I think between you know, like us in Oklahoma City, uh, we do tend to be a, a kind of stopping point and to split up and go different directions with whatever their contraband is. So, in, in a lot of times the person, it could just be a trusted person from the um, subject in California that's trying to transport his, his contraband across. But it just could be that he's related to a certain gang. Or it could be that they've hired that gang of, hey, we need y'all to break this up for us and, and get it out of y'all's area. Um as I said, a lot of that could just be geographical location and not necessarily the size of our town just because we have I-27 that comes from the south, uh, which connects to other highways down in Lubbock uh, to where you can move stuff from southern cities uh, through here and up north. And then we also have I-40 that gets, uh, you know, everything from the west coast to the east coast and the east coast back to the west coast. So, um, <coughs> I said, wouldn't necessarily... Be the size of our town, but just we're just geographically located a central part of the country to where that could happen. Just based on that,
0: like like you said, geographically isolated. Right here, we're in between. We're four hours from Albuquerque, four mm-hmm. hours from three and a half hours from Oklahoma City, um, and then beyond that, there's the desert after Albuquerque, mm-hmm. and then beyond Absolutely. Oklahoma City, we have you know different ways to travel north and sure in all different directions. So it seems like Amarillo is literally centered. Perfectly, yeah. perfectly. I don't know if that's the right
3: word in this yeah.
0: conversation <laughs> right. but between us. And Im- imperfectly, City. imperfectly. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Yeah. So I'm a I'm a big fan of the show The Wire on HBO uh, when that was uh, still uh, still a show. Uh, just it, it might be something that uh, people in general the contact that they have with what what you guys do the way they relate to it is often through the things that they see whether it be Breaking Bad. Um, or uh, maybe some, uh, Clint Eastwood's The Mule, or uh, something along those lines. There's, uh, the Wire, specifically the first season, seems to uh, resonate a lot with police officers and law enforcement uh, that I've spoken with that have watched that first season for some reason or another. Um, there's a lieutenant in that uh, first season that makes a statement, and it really struck me, kind of hit me between the eyes whenever I heard it. Um, uh, so this is from season one, The Wire. He says, See, this is the thing that everyone knows and no one says. You follow the drugs and you get a drug case. But if you follow the money, you don't know where you're going. You guys have uh, any comments on that particular quote? or?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's true uh, because, like you said, you know, if you follow the drugs, you're going to get into a drug trafficking organization. Uh, but the money is trafficked the same way, whether it's drug money um, or other criminal activity. It could be, you know, firearms, uh, prostitution, you know, Uh, or human trafficking, uh, that type of thing, excuse me. Um, But, I mean, you you always know when you deal with drugs, okay, we're dealing with drug people, Uh, but with money, it's like, what is this going to lead to? You know, it could be uh, someone that's fraudulently taking money, you know, through credit card skimmers or, um, you know, some kind of white-collar type crime, Um, or it could be human trafficking or, you know, all kinds of things.
3: You know, we do have, you know, agents that are in place that work the financial end of things. So that's certainly not our expertise on where that is. So most of what we see in the job function that we do certainly starts, usually it starts with uh, the contraband or the criminal aspect itself, whether it be drugs, weapons, um, or something like that, and then leads into the assets and the money trail that's involved Uh, But, and typically for us, you know, uh, the the contraband,er if we're going to talk about drugs is going eastbound. And typically we see, you know, coming from the southern border. And then funds, uh, bulk cash smuggling is typically going uh, westbound back to the southern border as far as as that goes. Uh, You know, as far as extending the case, I would say probably most of our cases, as far as intelligence goes, builds a lot further off of the contraband side of it than it does off the money side. I think there's a little more incentive when you're when you're sitting in the car with 33 keys of Coke um, to, uh, you know, be cooperative and realize, hey, I messed up here. Uh, I don't want the rest of my life to be, you know, in the hands of the cartel. Let me see what I can do to help the community and get through this. And we're able to work some intelligence based off of where we're at. Um, if you're caught with, uh, you know, a load of money, um, you can easily walk away from that. And you really haven't risked anything as far as giving information or, on that side of it, that's typically what we've seen. Um, does it work other ways? I'm sure, and there's probably people that are uh, more have more expertise in the money, in the money side, and the assets uh, of the criminal.
1: So, how often, if you do have some criminal anything, whatever it happens to be, is is it most often drugs are associated?
2: Yes, in in, in different ways, uh, but usually, like w- w- when we're mentioning marijuana earlier. Um, even when we're investigating other criminal elements, whether you know be like human trafficking or um, you know could be firearms and stuff like that, there's usually going to be drugs at some point that we're going to come across.
3: Yeah, I'd say it's pretty typical of yeah. uh, all the the burglaries, auto thefts, um, assaults, sexual assaults, um, those sort of sort of things. I think um, in Amarillo we see is methamphetamine being directly. Uh, tied to those, to those issues. And obviously a drug addiction um, leads you into, into, into crimes that you never would have seen yourself doing. I mean, when you, when you have to come up with a means, um, you're, you're dependent on it, and then you've lost the function to, to hold down a job, to socialize in a normal group, or continue what would be considered a, uh, you know, the normal public activities. Well, then you have to find a way to support yourself and also support the addiction or the habit um, or dependency that you've created, which leads into people uh, burglarizing. Like, you know, we were talking with, um, uh, well, we've talked to numerous people, but it, usually it starts on the on the juvenile level is they'll start uh, taking money out of their parents' wallet. They'll start stealing stuff. They'll take that stuff, sell it to their friends. Um, then it escalates to now we're stealing stuff, taking it to pawn shops. Now we're doing full-on home burglaries. Now we're stealing cars. And, you know, I don't think that's something people just jump into and go, hey, I'm going to start burglarizing houses. Um, There's a catalyst that starts it. And I would dare say um, most of the time it is, uh, it's narcotics related that drives that person uh, to a point of
0: dependency in a need, which creates the crime to support that. So, yeah. Okay. So when you guys are doing not necessarily cold stops, but y'all are in a uh, full investigation mode. At what point does, uh, for example, like you get, maybe you get fed information from like one of your chemistry labs, uh, about the purity, the potency of, of, a and maybe at the price of a drug that tends to be popular. Um, when you're trying to seize that, how often does it, pl- how does that play and prioritize your caseload? Cause I know you guys have, you know, pretty dramatic caseloads and, uh, how does, that, how does that help you prioritize those? The,
2: the purity really doesn't affect it a whole lot. Um, on the federal level, they pay a little more attention to uh, how pure something is versus, you know, how they prosecute, basically. Um, on our end, if, if there's any presence of the drug uh, in a substance, then it's that drug. Uh, we, we prosecute dilutants and all. So the purity really doesn't affect our prosecution. Um what we may prioritize is, is how big of a role that person or how much that person's affecting the community. Um, then we might put a little more, you know, priority on them that that's the person we want to make sure we take care of because mm-hmm. it seems like they've got a very negative effect on the community. Um, but as far as the purity that we haven't really ever been driven by purity. It's just, you know, the drug is the drug and, you know, and we use that for our cases.
3: Uh, you know, and, and, You know, I think the one thing to remember is that, you know, um, you know, we're human beings and we try to connect on a human level with the people that we're encountering. So, you know, we don't go into this blindly feeling like everybody is a a cartel member um, because they have a a Xanax bar or they have, uh, you know, a bag of weed on them. Um, These are human beings that that make mistakes. And what we found is that most of these people involved in this are good people that made a mistake. There are a few, the smaller group of them, that are genuinely evil people that need prosecuted to the fullest, Uh, but most of them end up being victims of a poor choice that have taken them down a road that they need help getting back from. And the people that are willing to accept help and let us talk to them and work with them and realize, hey, this person doesn't want to be here, Um, certainly our priority is not sticking them in prison for the rest of their life. So we're able to work with with our administration, prosecutors, judges, and say, hey, let's come up with a plan and figure out: um, does this poor little guy here that's trying to get help? How can we help mitigate the damage to his life? Um, versus everybody being considered, you know, oh, he's a he use, he's a drug dealer or he's a drug user. Um, everybody does not fit into the same category. Absolutely,
1: that is something that we were talking about with um, Representative For Price is that we have they have specialty courts, and when people do get in with drugs they go to the specialty court and a lot of them are very successful when they go to that they get help they get counseling and they're not the bad people that you know Absolutely. we see as the drug dealers that need to be in prison and Absolutely. You guys this is so neat. I really haven't if you've noticed I'm just sitting here listening because I'm fascinated by everything that goes on in this and it's really it's so huge because I do have kids and so um the numbers that I'm looking at of so many young people who are getting involved with drugs. It really, it terrifies me. So you guys out there working and seeing you guys and make me feel like, okay, there's heroes and there's a chance. and No, my kids are going to be just fine. I'm going to introduce you to them, by the way. So in pictures. So if you ever
0: Perfect. see them. <laughs> <laughs>
3: we appreciate having the opportunity to be here. Uh, it constantly changes. We're constantly learning. Uh, we don't claim to have all the answers and know everything. Absolutely. We're learning to kind of, as the community changes and as our problems change, try to educate ourselves and stay in that process. So we appreciate you asking us the questions and yes. making us think a little bit and uh, engage with the community. So,
0: Gentlemen, thank you so much for being uh, being a part of our show this morning, uh, visiting with us about this, uh, these critical topics. And, you know, it's, like you said, they're human problems, and uh, we've got to figure out how to deal with them as communities, as, a, as professional organizations. And our, our government cares about this, I think, is one of the, One of the key takeaways is that our government cares about people. It cares about its people and wants to take care of them. And um, thank you so much. Uh, We know that your time is extraordinarily valuable, and uh, we thank you for spending it with us. Thanks for having us. So before we go, Beth and I want to uh, recommend a podcast also produced here in the Panhandle PBS and FM studios. Um, It's called Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. It's hosted by our dear friends Hillary Holstein and uh, Amy Presley, they talk about different genres of books with our special guests and, uh, and authors. It's available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and other podcast apps and podcatchers. So thank you again to our guests this morning, and uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.